Well, welcome back to uh, Centerpoint and our uh, School of Theology. And uh, if you're here uh, for the first time, uh, we're about three years, or we're in our third year of this School of Theology, and I think we're about halfway through or so. Uh, to my right here, uh, there is a table of chaplains, if you'd raise your hands, that... that Uh, they're here for just a week and a half more, I think. They've been here for a while. Uh, but tonight, maybe they'll be here next week. Okay. But in case you don't see them next week, be sure to say something to them before they uh, leave. But we appreciate uh, all you do. Thank you. Now let's uh, pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for an opportunity uh, midweek on a Wednesday evening to gather as uh, a family and together with a purpose here to study and study your word and appreciate the truths that you have revealed to us in scripture tonight as we, as we think about the doctrine of union with Christ. We, we pray especially that we might be captivated by a truth that affects every part of our lives, both now and that which is to come. Now bless us, we pray. Uh, give us the blessing of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are looking together uh, at uh, the Ordo Salutis, uh, the order of salvation, the order of the application of redemption. Uh, we're asking a question uh, that follows some of the studies that we've been doing together, been looking at the person and work of Christ, and as a consequence of all that Jesus has done, uh, how does that become ours? How is that applied to us? Uh, because unless it is applied to us, as Calvin says in uh, Book 3 of the Institutes, everything that he has accomplished is... Uh, is useless and of no value unless the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to us in an experiential uh, way. And that he does by various features that we think of as calling, effectual calling, um, faith, repentance, uh, regeneration before that, uh, justification by faith, sanctification, perseverance, uh, glorification. There are, there are various aspects that we can pull out and focus upon. Tonight, we're still, we're still kind of hovering in the air. Uh, and tonight, I want us to look at union with Christ. And I want to refer to it, point number one on your outline, I want to refer to it using a word that's not, perhaps not in your everyday uh, speech, and, and here's your challenge to use this word before next Wednesday. Uh, I want to refer to it as the architectonic principle. The architectonic principle. I, I like to think of union with Christ like the hub of a wheel, and all the various spokes of that wheel are things like regeneration and Effectual calling and faith and repentance and justification and sanctification. Those are like spokes, 
but the hub of the wheel is union with Christ. Every element, and if you're visiting and you haven't had an outline, there are outlines on this table to my left. So just get up and get one. Uh, Every element in the order salutis, every element in the application of redemption is a further perspective of this one central dominant reality in the New Testament, our union with Christ. If there is one particular feature that characterizes who and what we are as Christians, it is this. We are those who are in Christ. We are in union with Christ. That's the most dominant thing uh, in the New Testament. Now, that idea of union with Christ is is approached from different angles, using different metaphors. Uh, One, for example, Ephesians 5, 30 through 32, the analogy of marriage and one flesh. Ephesians 5, 30 says, a man shall leave uh, his father and mother and uh, hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul goes on to speak of that as a mystery and that mystery is Christ and the church. The relationship in this sense, a corporate relationship of Christ to the church is like the relationship of marriage and of one flesh in marriage. It's, a, it's as intimate and as as personal as that. That's one of the images that Paul uses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a lengthy section, 12 through 20. Uh, It's the passage in which Paul uh, says things like that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit uh, and the body and and, we as individual members of that body are members of Christ. Now, in, in that section in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says something that I would be reluctant to say if Paul hadn't said it. He's, he's talking about an issue in Corinth, um, uh, prostitution, uh, per- perhaps something that was a, an aspect of the former lives of the Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthians had been, had been brought from all kinds of former lives, uh, all kinds of sins and sinful behavior and sinful patterns of life. And, and remember Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he gives a list of sins and he says, and such were some of you. But in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he, he makes the point, perhaps when somebody's converted, they'd been, forgive me, but this is what Paul is talking about, they'd been used to perhaps visiting a prostitute and, and now that they're in Christ, they can't do that anymore, except that perhaps it was still continuing. It was a pattern of life. It was a practice in that culture, in that society. And, and Paul says, in effect, what Paul says, you know, when you visit a prostitute, you can't leave Jesus at the door and pick him up on the way out. Because your whole life now is dominated by this one reality that you are in Christ. So that if you visit a prostitute, you are taking Christ to visit that prostitute. It's, it's, it's very edgy. It's very in your face what Paul is saying. But the point is that union with Christ is a dominant feature that you can't pick up and, and, and leave off. You can't 
have, have, you can't be in Christ six days of the week and, and be out of Christ for one day. You can't, when you sin, you sin in Christ. When you sin, you sin in Christ. If you look at pornography, you do it. You take Jesus with you. Jesus' eyes are looking at it. You can't leave him outside the door. Say, I'll pick you up in an hour. I'll, I'll have my sin time now. That's the ugliness of sin. That's the ugliness of sinful behavior as a Christian. You make Jesus do this because you are in Christ. John 14 let not your hearts be troubled, you believe in God, and so on. Verses 17, verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. You in me, I in you. We could spend the rest of the evening trying to explore what that means. I am in Christ, he is in me. Uh, if you drop down to G, you'll notice John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says something very similar in the high priestly prayer. I in them. That's how John 17 ends. I in them. That's how it ends. John 15, vine and the branches. Lots of different metaphors here. All saying the same thing. The analogy of our union and communion with Jesus. Uh, let's look at Paul. L lots, of, uh, lots of discussion, debate, scholarly debate, interesting debate as to where did Paul get this idea of union with Christ. Uh, if you drop down to 3.3 three, uh, in Christ, you see that there? En Christo, in Christ, used... Uh, 87 times, I think, I, I was trying to find out the exact number, trying to use my software today, and I wasn't sure that I was using it correctly, but I, 87 times in Paul, in Christ. I, I, I often think, uh, what if you found, you know, Paul wrote several letters to Corinth, and at least one, and maybe two of them are lost, some say three. Let's go for one for now. Supposing, uh, supposing an archaeologist doing some dig somewhere and he uncovers this, uh, this piece of papyrus or whatever and, and uh, it looks and sounds like Paul and it's, it's, a, it's a obviously a letter to Corinth. And how would, you, how would you verify? I know lots of other questions are coming in your mind. I mean, would it be part of Scripture? No is my answer. But, but uh, right, so, so no. <laughs> but how would you know that this is Paul. Well, one of, one of the things you'd look for is a characteristic telltale um, indication of something Paul always did. If it was uh, Ralph Davis's letter, you'd be looking for, for illustrations <laughs> of the Civil War. Because <laughs> if there's no illustrations of the Civil War, then it, uh, that's not a Ralph Davis letter. <laughs> right? but, but if it's Paul, you're looking for in Christ. In Christ. It, it was a telltale signature of the Apostle Paul. Where did he, you know, where did he get that? And some of you are going to say, well, the Holy Spirit gave that to him. And yes, of course, the Holy Spirit. But where did he get it from? In providence. 
And, and I, think, I think the answer is on the Damascus Road. Persecuting Stephen. Consenting to the death of women and perhaps children. Teenagers. Single-handedly, he almost wiped out the church. Single-handedly. And, and hearing a voice, and it was Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? He, he was persecuting this, Christ, this sect. But he heard a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when you lay your hand on one of mine, you lay your hand on me, Jesus says. I think not a day went by in Paul's life. I can imagine a day going by in Paul's life that he didn't remember his hand in the death of Stephen. He was guilty as charged. To his dying day, though that sin was forgiven, I doubt that it was ever forgotten. He always remembered what he had done. In, in Christ, uh, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ is in you and, and, and therefore you are in Christ, then there's this absolute certainty, the hope of glory. Uh, various prepositions here Christ is for us Christ is with us Christ is in us um, take the Adam Christ parallel in Romans 5 the second half of Romans 5 from verse uh, 12 through 21 as in Adam Come on. As in Adam, so in Christ. Well, a, a B minus, maybe. <laughs> the whole universe of humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. Uh, look at that quotation. It's a very famous quotation from Thomas Goodwin. Paul speaks of them, Adam and Christ, as if there had never been any more men in the world, nor was there ever to be for time to come except these two. And why? But because these two between them had all the rest of the sons of men hanging at their girdle, well, belt, bring it up to the 21st century, uh, belt. You are either in Adam or else you're in Christ. Actually, every one of us at one time was in Adam. And I trust that every one of us in here is in Christ. And if that isn't true, you need to get into Christ. Into union with Christ. I know this is a course on theology, but it can be an evangelistic moment too. Because all of, all of what Jesus has done is useless and no value unless you are in Christ. It, it doesn't matter if the person next to you is in Christ, or your mother was in Christ, 
You need to be in Christ. Now, there are several dimensions, three dimensions of union with Christ. When we think of union with Christ, we need to think of it along three uh, dimensions. The first is what we can call um, eternal union. Think of what Paul says, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1. You remember Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 in that long sentence, uh, Dr. Davis, as we were in church on Sunday night, remember he was talking about a long sentence in uh, Colossians. Actually, I think there's a longer sentence in Ephesians. Paul didn't worry too much about commas and, and periods and semicolons and stuff. He had much more important things to do. The grammar police can get to me afterwards. I, I have a secretary who keeps me uh, correct on, on, uh, on issues of grammar. But um, think of Ephesians chapter 1. Remember Paul? It, it, it's almost as though he's taken out a thesaurus and asked, give me all the words you can think of that have to do with election and predestination. I know. The will of God, the purpose of God, the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of God, the election of God. He's, he uses eight, nine different words in Ephesians chapter 1 to, to, to speak of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And in the course of which he says things like, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in union with Christ. We were chosen not as a kind of arbitrary decision of God, but that decision of God was always cognizant of a redemptive plan. Chosen in Christ, in communion with Christ, in fellowship with Christ, the Christ who would become the mediator, the Christ who would become the redeemer, the Christ who would, who would become incarnate and, 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 and be crucified for our sins, chosen in Christ in eternity. There's an eternal union with Christ. Uh, think of John 14. Uh, we've already alluded to it, but, but uh, let's look at it again. John 14, 20. In that day... You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's, he's actually thinking, I think, in terms of the future. Not so much, you know, we talk about eternity past and eternity future. If you exegete that too much, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but... but, but Chosen in Christ, and now in John 14, as, as Jesus is, is, is speaking to his disciples in the upper room, he's speaking of understanding that our future is also comprehended in Christ. There's an eternal dimension in which we are in union with Christ. Uh, think of uh, John 17, 21. That they may all be one, the, the great 
prayer of Jesus in John 17, the so-called high priestly prayer, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them, they in me. There's an eternal dimension to union with Christ. We were chosen in union with Christ, and we will spend eternity in union with Christ, in fellowship with Christ, in a bond that nothing and no one can ever sever. There's an eternal dimension to union with Christ. Then there's a second way that we can speak of union with Christ, and, and we can, we can call it incarnational union. In older theologies, it's sometimes called carnal union, but unfortunately the word carnal can mean different things, and in Britain it means something that doesn't help us here. So, so, so let's use the word in, incarnational. Uh, in, incarnational union, the, the, the union of, of, with Christ in his incarnation, in the sense that Jesus took human flesh and a human soul and a human mind and a human rationality and human affections and a human will. He was God, he was the Son of God, but he was also incarnate. He had a divine mind, but he has a human mind. He has a divine nature, but he has a human nature. A human nature just like us, apart from sin. That becomes very important. There isn't a a circumstance in which we find ourselves in that we can't say Jesus knows all about this. He's, He's been here. He's been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He identifies with us, with our frame, with our weakness. He knows what it is to be wholly dependent as a little child. He knows what it is to go through growing up pains. When he's 12 and he's parents have forgotten him and they have to come back and he's, he's growing up, he's, he's in the temple, he's disputing and, and, and teaching and listening about scripture there's the eternal aspect but there's the incarnational aspect we, we, we are in union with him in the sense that he identifies with us he knows my frame that I'm dust. And then thirdly, um, eternal union, incarnational union, and thirdly, and I'm, I'm going to use a, this word, there's an existential union. There's a union that occurs here and now. There's a time Existentially, when we are not in union with Christ, we are in union with Adam. And we come into union with Christ. 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the application of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, quickening us, regenerating us, drawing us to faith and and repentance, to embrace Christ, to get a hold of him as he's offered to us in the gospel. But there's an eternal aspect, but there's an existential aspect. You need to get into union with Christ. There's a before and an after. You know, when does that take place? Well, it takes place at different times in different people's lives. You know, when did, uh, when did John the Baptist come into union with Christ? In his mother's womb, I think. Uh, when did Samuel come into union with Christ? Well, Samuel was saved in the same way that you and I are saved. By faith in the promised Messiah. So when did he come into union with Christ? In his mother's womb, I think. When did Saul of Tarsus come into union with Christ? On the Damascus Road? Or or perhaps within days of it? In that period of blindness? When did I come into union with Christ? December the 28th, 1971. Now some of you, if I asked Rosemary, uh, she couldn't tell you because uh, she's one of these Presbyterians uh, who went to church every Sunday, twice on Sunday and, and Sunday school and sang hymns around the piano with her mother and, and she can't remember a day when she didn't believe. She's embarrassed now. That's the testimony of some of you. you. You don't remember a day when you didn't believe. But whether you experience it, whether you can name a day and an hour like, like I can, is immaterial. But we are born, we are conceived in sin, in Adam. And at some point, and it may be, it may be, in your mother's womb, it maybe when you're two or four or six or eight or eighty-six. But there needs to be a moment when you come into union, into existential union with Christ. Now there's the statement from Calvin. As long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done. For the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. He's talking about existential union with Christ. Now, uh, let's drop down to three and the implications. Uh, What did I say union with Christ is? It is the architectonic principle. It's the governing principle. It's like the architect's plan and and, uh, it's like the, let me change the metaphor, it's like the hub of the wheel. And it has three dimensions. It has an eternal dimension in the electing purposes of God. We are chosen in Christ. 
It has an incarnational aspect in the sense that Jesus became like us, identified with us. There's a union between him and us. We do not have an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then there's this existential dimension. We come into union with Christ. Now for Paul, that was his dominating, that dominated, uh, that was his dominating theological idea. I would put it as strongly as that. The dominant theological idea in the Apostle Paul is union with Christ, in Christ. He uses en Christo over and over and over and over. He uses all kinds of metaphors to to expand on the idea of being in union with Christ. Now let's look at some implications. Well, the first, if the most dominant aspect for Paul in the New Testament of what it means to be a Christian is union with Christ, then it follows that we should rely on nothing and no one else but Christ for our salvation. We should look to no one else and nothing else. What is the most important thing for us to be sure of tonight? Am I in union with Christ? Am I in union with him? Because our whole salvation is understood in terms of that one idea, being in union with Christ. Do I walk with him and talk with him along life's narrow way? Do I wake up in the morning and I'm conscious that I'm in union with Christ? Do days go by, weeks go by, and I just never think about him? It's the most dominant idea. Rely on nothing and no one else but Christ for salvation. Now, for Paul, that has enormous implications. That our past life is no longer the dominating influence. Now, let's, let's think about Adam, Christ. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. I used to be in Adam. I was born in Adam. Now I'm in Christ. My federal head is no longer Adam. My federal head is Christ. The, the, the dominating feature and influence in my life now is Christ and my union with Christ, my fellowship with Christ, my communion with Christ. It's the most important aspect um, about me right now. I am a man in Christ. Who are you? What are you? Well, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? It means I'm a man in Christ. I, I, I live 24-7 
in union and communion with Christ. It dominates everything. It's the most important reality in my life. My union with Christ. Now, uh, notice there under under um, uh, three union with Christ and our humanity. Um, there's a little quotation here from Burkhoff. By this union, believers are changed into the image of Christ according to his human nature. Right? If you're in if you're in union with Christ, in communion with him, you fellowship with him, he's your federal head, what, what, what's, he's the most dominant influence in your life, what does that mean? It means that you are being, you're being molded, shaped, transformed into his image. You know, what is, uh, we're, we're going to talk about sanctification, it's one of the ways in which the finished work of Christ is applied to us. But what is sanctification? It's not a, you know, in one sense, it's not a mystery. It's not complicated. You know, people say it's complicated. You ask people about certain things and they say it's complicated. What is sanctification? Well, it's not complicated. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. You're being made like him. You're being changed so that you conform more and more to his image. What Christ effects in his people is in a sense a replica or reproduction of what took place with him. Not only objectively but in a subjective sense also they bear the cross, are crucified, die and are raised to newness of life with Christ. Think of Think of Jesus' words at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's the next section, although stewardship is going to interrupt this, but, but it's the next section in Mark's gospel. Uh, th- those of you who are Sunday morning uh, regular attenders, we've, we've seen Jesus going all over the place. North, south, east, west, up and down the Sea of Galilee. But next, he's going to go up to the north and, and as, almost as far as he could possibly go to Caesarea Philippi. Who's been in Caesarea Philippi? What? Am I the only person who's been in Caesarea Philippi? Wow. I could say anything I like. Oh. Uh, you, you remember the question? Who do men say that I am? And there were all kinds of answers. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist, returned from the dead. But who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to him, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven, and I say to you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And and then, do you remember what he goes on to say to Peter? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. What does union with Christ mean? 
You know, you're in, you, you have union with your, with your spouse. That's one of the analogies Paul uses. It's like, uh, it's like being married. What does that mean? What does that mean? More and more and more, you don't think about yourself. You think about someone else. Like when you think about yourself, your marriage is going to be in trouble. Marriages get into trouble because people think about themselves. It's all about me and my rights. So what's the first thing you do in the morning? You get up and make your wife a cup of tea. It's indelibly imprinted on my consciousness. Whatever else is going on this day, I need to make a cup of tea and take it to Rosemary in bed. It's a bad day when I don't do that. (laughs) It's thinking about someone else. It's no longer me. It's about someone else. And Jesus is saying to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, do you know what it means to be a follower of me? It means to deny yourself. Take up a cross. And a, a cross isn't a piece of jewelry. It, it always amazes me. You know, you'd be flabbergasted if, if somebody came with a... With a, with a, with a gas chamber or a little syringe or or something even more politically incorrect, a noose hanging around their neck, a little silver one with, with diamond inlays. A cross is an instrument of death, a civil instrument of execution. I want you to die to yourself every day that's what union with Christ says I'm, I'm in union with him so it's not it's not about me it's not about my rights it's about him it's about him you know there's one more thing Actually, there's a ton more things, but, but there's one more thing that I, can, that I really want to talk about in the time we have, and that is, if... Now, I want you to think, Hodges, I need you to think theologically here for a second. If union with Christ is the dominating, what's the word I've used, architectonic, the hub of the wheel, if you like, if union with Christ is the hub of the wheel, every other aspect of my redemption is related to union with Christ. If I've got union with Christ, what have I got? In effect, everything. Everything. You see, you can't have union with Christ and faith and repentance, but not final perseverance. 
Oh, there's the reformed guy again. Right? You see, if you, if you are in union with Christ, you cannot, you cannot fall from grace. You, you, it, it's impossible. It can't be done. You, you can't be in union with Christ today and, and not be in union with Christ tomorrow. Having begun a good work, he will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Right? Those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but freely delivered him up for us all. How shall he not, along with him, freely give us all things? And if you're in union with Christ, he's going to give you everything. Absolutely everything. Do you see how important the question is, am I in union with Christ? The question is not, will I persevere to the end? The question is, am I in union with Christ? That, that, that's, that's the important question. This, this is uh, the final quotation, Ted Donnelly, dear friend of mine. This union with Christ underlies every part of the Christian life. It is why a true believer can never fall away permanently from faith. How could someone hanging on Christ's belt, remember Thomas Goodwin's quotation? How can someone hanging on Christ's belt become detached and be lost? It is at the heart of our growth in holiness for sanctification is based on union with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's Paul's argument in Romans 6. You died with Christ. You have been raised with him. You are no longer in Adam. Live accordingly. So what have we been saying? Union with Christ is the dominating theological idea of the Apostle Paul. It's the dominating idea of the New Testament. It's how we should think of our salvation, our redemption, in terms of our union and fellowship and communion with him. Everyone, the entire universe, is either in Adam or in Christ. I love it when Paul begins some of his letters and he writes to those in Colossae, as we were thinking on Sunday evening. And uh, uh, along with me, I'm sure you're excited about marching our way through this wonderful Colossian epistle over the next few weeks. To those who are at Corinth, to those who are at Colossae, in Christ, they are in Colossae, they're in Christ. They're in Corinth, they're in Christ. We are here, we're in Columbia. But we are also in Christ. We have this twin identity. We are here, but we're also in, here in union with and in communion with Christ. You're in pain. You're in sorrow. You're in difficulty. You're in hurt. 
but you're also in Christ. And that makes all the difference in the universe. Well, we'll segue next week. Actually, Mark McDowell is going to take you next week through uh, effectual calling. It's going to be the stunner of a, of a course next week on effectual calling. A very, very important uh, truth. Um, let's pray together. We're going to segue into a time of prayer. Uh, please stay if you can. Um, we're going to be joined by others in a few minutes. Uh, we'll be done by 7.30. And uh, there are prayers. We'll, we'll pray for some specific things, but we'll also be praying around tables. So if you're sitting on the edge, you can stay there if you want. But if you want to come to the tables, we'll start this prayer meeting in about a minute and a half. But let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for these uh, wonderful truths that you reveal to us in the scriptures thank you for what it means to be in Christ to be in him to be right inside of him not to be just on the periphery reaching out trying to touch him but in him right inside him and he in us by his Holy Spirit so that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the representative agent of Jesus. Help us to think of ourselves every day as those who are in him. Oh, may that keep us away from sin. And help us to break those sinful habits, knowing that when we sin, we, we take Jesus with us into that sin. Now bless us, we pray. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.